When was the last time you were full of joy? The kind of joy that doesn't just sit at the surface, but goes deep down into your soul. The kind of joy that tends to bubble up and over and come out radiating in a smile or laughter. When was the last time you had that kind of joy? The kind of joy that tends to mark moments in time. Were you able to look back on that kind of joy and reminisce on it? I want to invite you now to bring that moment into your mind's eye. Maybe it was this last week, last month, last year. I just want to invite you to bring that into your mind now. Just hold it there before the Lord. For some, that question may have been difficult for you, because maybe for you, if you were honest, it's been a really long time since you've had that kind of joy, that kind of joy that goes deep into the soul. For others, you went to your go-to moment. It is the one with the well-worn path that you often visit when you're needing a lifting of your soul. And for many, a moment may have come to mind, but you found it pretty difficult to track down. And almost like frantically searching, like for your lost keys, were you looking for that moment of joy? When was the last time I had it, and where did I put it last? These moments of joy. Why are moments of joy so far and few between? Well, to put it simply, we live in a joy-deficient culture. Every day, you're bombarded with the reality of the brokenness of the world. Right now in your pockets, chances are sits a supercomputer that has direct access to you all the time that literally has something called push notifications to invite you into its system of anxiety and to remind you of all the ways the world is broken. You could be having the best day possible until you unlock your phone and realize the world is in shambles. Do not be deceived, this bears weight on your soul. On top of that, we have this exponentially growing epidemic of anxiety, depression, and loneliness. We are by far the most depressed, anxious, and lonely generation to ever be in existence, and all the stats of that are in. Add on top of that, just the regular pains and aches of being a human being with family issues and work stress and exhaustion and technological addiction and all the other things that come with life. We wonder why we are joy deficient. It seems that much of our lives, if we are honest, is constantly surrounded by a cloud of darkness. And each of us know there's a certain kind of sadness that we've befriended. It makes sense of the words of, words of Jesus where he says to his disciples in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Maybe that's how you've come in this morning, full of trouble. Now, those words of Jesus aren't news to anyone in this room. 
we all deeply know the ache of living. And these moments of joy that I just had you bring to mind function like suns of the, uh, the rays of sun, rather, that beam through the clouds of darkness, dispelling its power. It is in these moments that we feel the ache of, li- ache of living ease, and we run towards all kinds of things to help ease this ache of living. And into this ache of living, Jesus promises joy. John 15, 11, Jesus says this, I have told you this, that, you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Another way to translate that word complete is with the word full, that your joy may be full. Is your joy full here this morning? To be honest, Many have looked to the church to discover a community of joy. However, the church has been tried and been found wanting. They've come looking to us as followers of Jesus for this sense of joy and come to find for some reason we're quite serious people. We're quite sad people. We are, in the language of some, party poopers. Right? And this is kind of our, our, our um, reputation, if you will. Now, there's a lot to that reputation, but it has also been my experience that followers of Jesus tend to take themselves way too seriously and tend to suck the joy out of the room. Now, anytime we see a picture of Jesus, what does he look like? Does he look exuberant with joy? and the paintings you've seen of him or the portraits you've seen of him? Chances are no. Most of the images of Jesus, at best, he looks super concentrated, right? That's like the most generous way to put that. At worst, he looks super grumpy. If we could be totally honest, or at least somber and sad. Now the question I have for you is, is that an accurate picture of what Jesus was like? Now, um, Often, we carry that picture of Jesus into our minds, and it shapes the way that we view God. Tozer has this great line where he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God, hear this, is the most important thing about us. If our picture of Jesus is always super serious or angry or upset, hear this, it shapes the way we do life with him. And it shapes the moments we allow God into. And so is that picture, that portrait of Jesus, true to who he is? I would argue it's a false picture of Jesus. That that picture is not an accurate picture of what Jesus was actually like. Now, caveat, we know that Jesus knew grief and he knew sorrow and he took his mission very seriously. But we also know that his heart is full of joy. John Hartberg says this, we will not understand God until we understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. God also knows sorrow. Jesus is remembered, among other things, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, is his temporary response to a fallen world. 
That sorrow will be banished forever from the heart of God the day the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is his eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. Is that your image of him? That if you close your eyes and try to picture the image of Jesus, what does he look like looking back at you? Is he disappointed or angry or frustrated, or is he the happiest being in the universe? To picture Jesus with a smile in your mind, I would argue, is the most accurate picture of his heart. And it's not just me saying this. My argument to you this morning is that the whole biblical narrative paints Jesus as a heart filled with joy, delight, and celebration. We begin with a biblical theology of God as a joyful God. And we begin all of our biblical theology in the same place, Genesis. You guys are going to get sick of that one day, and frankly, I don't care. That's what we're going to continue to do through and through. In the beginning, in the opening pages of the scriptures, creation is coming into being. God is bring or, bringing order out of chaos. And do you know what he says after he finishes every day? That it's good. That it's good. That it's good. The song of heaven being sung over creation is that it's good. Now, what I don't want you to have in your mind is like someone just accepting what is. Ah, it's good, you know. But singing with delight over creation, it is good. And it culminates in it is very good. And on the last day of creation, it says that on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, the Lord took that day and he did what? He blessed it. He said of that day, it is good. And he delighted over the creation that he made. That as he rested on the seventh day, he rested in delight over what he had made. You ever had those days where you have been working in the yard all day or working through a serious project at work, and finally it is finished, right? You sent the email, you put the rake away, whatever it was, and there's that moment where you like plop down into something, and you just take that deep sigh of like, ah, it's done, it's finished. That's the seventh day, that's the Sabbath, that is God singing over creation, his joy, him delighting in the work that he has done. Now, it's not just there, as we move on into the story of the life of Israel, the way that God had the people of God order their lives was around feasts and celebrations. The way they would order their calendar is around celebrating who God is and what he has done. That is how they fundamentally measured time was life with God. And these significant moment markers were all feasts, celebrations, I know some of you aren't super stoked about the book of Leviticus, and I could totally understand that. But in the book of Leviticus, it gives specific instructions for what these feasts are supposed to be like. And they're to be like parties, celebrations. I don't want you to have in your mind like a really boring potluck with super bad food, and you're just hoping to get out of there as soon as possible. I want you to think about the best party you've ever been to, and that is how the celebration is done. 
and that is what the people of God were to mark their lives after. First was the weekly celebration of Sabbath. And outside of that, you had the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. The people of God are constantly throwing a party about who God is. God wanted his reputation among the nations to be the God of celebration because God is surely with his people. He wanted neighboring nations to be like, they're throwing another party? It's the 7th of July. What is going on here, right? A couple of weeks later, another party? They're those annoying neighbors who are always filling up the, the street with cars because of the kinds of parties they're throwing. He wanted his people to be a people marked by celebration and joy because that is fundamentally his heart. And all of these feasts culminated in a feast called Jubilee, which, like, if we can say strong name for a party, right, Jubilee. Every 50 years, after every seven series of seven, 49 years, the people of God would come together and throw a massive party. Now, it wasn't just a great party. Here's what would happen. If you had any debts, they were canceled. If you had lost land, that was restored back to its original owner. And all that had been lost or broken had been restored. And so you can imagine growing up in that moment and longing for Jubilee. Because on the day of Jubilee, all would be set right again. This was God's way of dealing with systemic injustice, that there would be nobody stricken into poverty, that every 50 years there'd be a great reset. And some of you know the weight that debt brings. And there'd be something in you that even longs for that kind of relief. And this was jubilee amongst the people of God. Now, it is this mission and message of jubilee that Jesus carries with him. And it becomes the subject of his first sermon. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus steps into the temple, grabs the scroll of Isaiah, and reads from Isaiah 61. And he reads this beautiful passage about how he has come to set captives free. And he has this very clear message within Isaiah where he says, I've come to declare the year of the Lord's favor. A shorthand way of saying, it's the year of Jubilee. And Jesus says, I have come to bring about Jubilee. Now the author Luke is super intentional because from that moment, do you know what Jesus goes on and does? The very things of Jubilee. Setting captives free, healing the sick, binding up the brokenhearted, releasing captives, and proclaiming a message of freedom. This is Jesus' message he carries, this mission he carries, a mission of jubilee. Now, accompanied with that message of jubilee was a lifestyle of celebration, so much so that it infuriated the religious leaders of the time. Jesus was known as a few things, but a couple of them was drunkard and glutton. And it wasn't because he was fasting all the time and abstained from alcohol. It's because he was eating and drinking with sinners often. There's a way, if you work your way through the, the gospel of Luke, Jesus is going from party to party to party to party to celebration, constantly hanging out with those who are far from him. And so his reputation amongst the people was as a drunkard and a glutton because he is known for celebrating with the lost as they had come to be found in him. 
as they come to find their home in him. Jesus obviously maintained purity and holiness, but his posture was at a celebration. Think about the story of Zacchaeus as he comes out of that tree. What does Jesus tell him? We're throwing a party at your house today to celebrate what God has done in you. Same thing as he invites Matthew, the tax collector, to come and follow him. What immediately follows that moment is a celebration. We're partying at your house, Matthew, tonight. Jesus would lovely, would have been happy to invite people to his home, but he didn't have one. He was homeless, so he said, your house, bro, you're hosting. Let's go. And he celebrate and eat it and eat and drank with sinners. All of this to say, the clear picture painted in the scriptures is the God we serve is a God of celebration, joy, and delight. So how then do we as a community live into the reality of joy that is found in Jesus amidst a culture that is joy-deprived to become a community of delight? I'm so glad you asked. We respond to the invitation to delight through the practice of Sabbath. Tim Keller has this line where he says this, because the world is full of ugly things, we need the Sabbath to feed our souls with beauty. Over the last several weeks, we've been examining the practice of Sabbath, and each week we've been looking at what the word Sabbath means. And this is the definition that we've come to. Sabbath is a 24-hour block of time in which we stop work, enjoy rest, practice delight, and worship God. And each week has been an invitation to partake in the reality of Sabbath. The first was to stop. The next was to rest. And today's invitation is to delight. Now, when we talk about practices, namely Sabbath, it is easy for us to drift from its purpose. We start out in the right place, but we begin to drift over time. What's been awesome to hear in our community is conversations about what the Sabbath looks like in all of our lives. And much of the conversation drifts towards what's work and what's not. Our workaholics are trying to squeeze everything they possibly can in under the category of rest, right? Trying to shadow that underneath. And the rest of us are just trying to figure out what this looks like. What does my Sabbath day actually mean? What does that look like pragmatically as I live throughout my week? But... The focus of Sabbath doesn't come, begins to shift from spending time with God, resting, delighting, stopping, worshiping, and it starts to become, what can I, can't I do? And we have people who tend to think they're the Sabbath police. Hey, 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 put that down, work, no, you know, whatever it is. And that's a good desire, but it's misplaced. We begin to drift from its purpose. Now, that may just be in a couple of weeks of you trying to practice Sabbath. Imagine decades and decades, centuries as a people. One of the things that came, place, that came about among the people of God um, was stringent rules on the Sabbath, an effort to never break them. There was additional writings provided by the rabbis of Jesus' time where they added all these rules, regulations, and stipulations about what could and could not be done at the Sabbath, all an effort to protect the Sabbath, not realizing they were actually sucking the joy out of Sabbath. We all know this danger of drift. Maybe for you, you went a time without social media. And then something came back where you're like, I'm going to get social media again. And I have a legitimate reason. It is X, Y, or Z. And so you download it, and you have that talk with yourself in the mirror. You know, look, 
time limits. We're not going to look at it at this day. I'm just going to post. I'm not going to read other people's posts, all this other stuff. And you start off with that intention. And then what happens? Time. You drift. And one night, it's midnight. You're two hours deep into TikTok, watching these food videos or whatever it is, and you realize, what have I done? I had set these parameters and these things, and suddenly I have drifted away from the purpose in which I had started. For others of you, maybe it looks like it started out as going out uh, for drinks with your coworkers to celebrate a project being completed or something. And there was something nice about culminating the end of the workday with this celebration. So you took that celebration, and Fridays became the day where you would come and you'd have a couple of drinks after work to celebrate a long, hard week. And then Fridays became Wednesdays and Fridays. And Wednesdays and Fridays became Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. And then it became every single day. And suddenly, there's not a day of the week that goes by where you're not drinking. What started off as a good thing became something else. Maybe, as a parent, you downloaded Disney Plus because you wanted to watch all these great shows with your kids as a movie night. And you started showing them movies and shows and watching all the good stuff. And then over time, Disney Plus became your pseudo babysitter. And now it is watching your kids more than you are. What started off as a good thing drifts. Maybe you wanted to make some more money so that you could be more generous. You know, you could give more. You know, you couldn't in your current financial situation. But if I could just climb to that next tier, then I could be more generous. And so you stay extra hours, and you work hard, you begin to pull weekends, and you begin to pull in more money. And as the check hits your bank account, you realize, oh, I, I got to build the savings, and, you know, I got to save for the kids' colleges, and this, that. And before you know it, another thing, and another thing, and another thing, you're like, I do need those new Nikes, because these ones are kind of, you know, and another thing, and another thing, and before you know it, you are spending at the capacity of your new bandwidth, and you have no more money left to give, Right? What started off as a good thing easily drifts. Now, I could do example after example after example, but you get the point. The propensity of human nature is to drift. This happened with the Sabbath, and this brings us to our teaching text. So this is one Sabbath. Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He, being Jesus, answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, I should know that, I'm so sorry, just say it completely, Abathar, that's his name, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to him, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, I have to provide some context to what's happening here. So Jesus and his disciples are likely on their way to synagogue, hence why the the Pharisees see them. And as they're doing so, they're stopping for a quick lunch past these grain fields. Now, what they would do is they'd pick the heads of the grain. This honestly doesn't sound like a super good snack, but it is what it is. And they'd, like, roll it together in their hands, kind of threshing out the, the, the stuff and get to the actual seed and then eat that. That was kind of like a snack that they were having. And the Pharisees see this, and they're upset because they're not allowed to do this. And technically, the Pharisees are kind of right in that they are reaping on the Sabbath. They are 
taking that which has been planted and they're reaping. Some of you might be like stealing at that, but we'll get to that in a moment. And so they have this snack. Now, it was the reaping that was the kind of issue for the Pharisees because there was provision in the law that anybody who was hungry or poor could glean from the outer part of someone's property. That was cultivated and made for the poor. And so um, as, a, as a landowner, you know the edges of your property were that for the poor. And so there was provision in the law for that. But the big issue they took was with the reaping, the picking off and the rubbing together of their hands. They took, they took not working on the Sabbath very seriously. So you could see an argument from both ends of the thing, both ends of the conversation. But what Jesus was doing was absolutely lawful because it was in line with the heart of Sabbath. Now, Jesus responds to the accusation from the Pharisees by recalling a story in the life of David where David and his companions were on the run from Saul. David was to be king, um, and, and Saul didn't obviously like that as the current king, so he sought to kill David. So David and his men were on the run. And in doing so, they find themselves starving, hungry, and near the temple. And so they go inside and they ask for some food, and the only thing that is left for them to eat is the consecrated bread, which is, which is bread specifically designed only for the priest to eat. And David and his men partake of that with the approval of the priest. Now, there's so much we could talk about this conversation about David's authority and the law and all this other stuff, but here's the essential thing, and here are the two points that Jesus is making. First, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath, and second is this, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. First, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says something that's going to really frustrate the Pharisees here. And they're, that, they're like this, you're breaking the rules. And Jesus is like, I make the rules, essentially, is what he's saying. You're violating the Sabbath. He's like, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Mic drop, right? You can see why they didn't like Jesus very much. But Jesus is pulling his authority, saying, I am the son of man in Daniel chapter 7, and I have authority to say what is lawful and not lawful in the Sabbath. And what me and my disciples did was lawful. And he points back to that story about David eating the consecrated bread. The second thing he says, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time, and it's this. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. To put it simple, it's this. Sabbath is a gift for you to enjoy. It's a gift for you to enjoy. In creation, God didn't make the Sabbath day and be like, hmm, I really need someone to practice this for me. No, I guess I'll make humans, and he made them for the Sabbath. No, he created humanity, and he gave them Sabbath as a gift to walk in and to enjoy. And so it's not that we serve the Sabbath. It's that the Sabbath actually serves us. It blesses us. It's a gift to us from God for us to walk into it is a gift. Now, the point of Sabbath, brothers and sisters, is not to get granular about what is work and what isn't, but is instead about stopping work, enjoying rest, practicing delight, and worshiping God. Sabbath is not to be another burden onto your schedule, but is to free you from the burden of work. Dan Allender says this, the Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. The Sabbath, when experienced as God intended, is the best way to live our lives. Without question or thought, it is the best day of the week. 
It is the day we anticipate on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and the day we remember on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Sabbath is the holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex with our spouse, sing, pray, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in its fullness. Few people are willing to enter the Sabbath and sanctify it to make it holy because a day full of delight and joy is more than most people can bear in a lifetime, let alone a week. Sabbath should be a gift. It should be the best day of your week. All of the rest of your work week should be culminating in your day of rest. Sabbath is a day where we drink in all of the goodness of life and receive it for what it is, a gift. To put it simply, Sabbath is a day of delight. Now here's something you know. Delight won't just happen. You have to actually practice it. You have to cultivate it. What the New Testament authors call delight, the writers of spiritual formation literature call the discipline of celebration. Richard Foster, one of those authors, says this, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why celebration is a discipline. It is not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. Because of the world that you and I live in and how we live into this world, a posture of delight is not something you will stumble into. It's something you intentionally form in yourself, where you begin to shift your whole posture towards that of delight. The Apostle Paul in writing to the church in Philippi says it this way, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. Paul is saying, do you remember how we would pause and reflect on God's goodness and joy? And despite persecution and hard circumstances and things coming against us, we would cultivate joy. Do you remember how we did that? Do that. Set your minds on those things. Now, I want to be clear. This does not mean we ignore or brush under the rug the issues or pains of our day, but rather, hear me in this, we do not let them shape our perception of reality. We do not let them dictate how we view the world. Instead, we practice Sabbath delight and enter into the fullness of joy like the God we serve. Now, delighting is threefold. It's delighting in God's world, God's word, and God himself. First, God's world. We delight by bringing our attention to all that is good on the earth, to color our lenses by which we view the world with that, is, with that which is good, beautiful, and true. Secondarily, we delight in God's word. We allow God's word to saturate our whole being and let it shape our perspective of reality. And lastly, God himself. We delight in God himself. We participate in the practice of the presence of God and experience love, joy, peace, and hope as we be with him, as we are with him. And so you might be asking, now how do I pragmatically do this? 
First, you must cultivate joy. I want to ask you a question. What's your perfect day? You know, like when you close your mind and like you're free of all the tyranny of responsibility, right? What's your perfect day? What does that look like? For some of you, that's getting a book that you've been so longing to read, making yourself a cup of tea or coffee and sitting by uh, the, the window and just reading and basking in that all day. For others of you, it looks a little more kinetic. It looks like finally getting to do that hike on that trail you've been longing to do or going for a stroll in the park. For those of you who are creative, it looks like bringing, in out, bringing out all your markers and pencils and paintbrushes and just getting to finally get to do the work that you've been wanting to do in painting or creating something beautiful. Whatever it is that would bring about joy and not be work for you, do that. Cultivate joy. For our family, it looks different every time. There are things... I'm, I'm more introverted by nature, especially in the latter years, and it seems to be getting increasingly worse and worse. And so my, like, ideal day is silence. You know, that's my ideal day. Celeste is not that way. Her ideal day is us, like, doing really crazy and fun things. You see the tension. But together as a family, we want Sabbath for our kids to be the best day of the week that they look forward to. So Sabbath for us looks like different things. Sabbath looks like uh, two Sabbaths ago, it was us doing like a full-on WWE fight, me and my two boys on the trampoline, you know. Um, sometimes it looks like random dance parties where we get a Bluetooth speaker and we show our kids some of the old bops that they have no idea that exist. And we get crazy in our living room until mom and dad are sweating and are out of breath, you know. And the kids are trying to pull us off the couch to continue to dance more. Other times it looks like us gathering around for a family movie. Or sometimes, uh, this last Sabbath, yesterday, we concluded our Sabbath by watching animal videos, like cat things and dog things. I'm not a huge fan. The kids love it and eat it up, and so does Celeste. But that's what we do, and we do those things just to cultivate joy and to laugh and to share together. We do that which brings about joy. Now, a pastoral word on this. Many people's understanding of what it means to be follow Jesus sounds boring. Like if we're super honest, like put all like the, I know God is good, but, you know, if we're honest, it sounds super boring. If that's your experience of following Jesus, I have news for you. You're doing it wrong. Like you just are. There are so many great and wonderful things to participate in life with Jesus that he wants you to engage in. Think about the very best things that you love in this world. Those are just a shadow of the things to come. And they're just a portion of the one who brought them into being. We get this vision that the kingdom that's coming looks like a 24-7 worship service. And it's not even the songs you enjoy the most. It's like the ones you should know and sing, you know what I'm saying? And it's just this perpetual, ongoing, like three hours in, I'm still going strong, but I'm fading. And then we're talking about eternity, like 500 million years into this, and we're still, and again, our God is an awesome, you know, like forever? That's our perception of what the kingdom will look like. And that's just not biblical. The kingdom looks like earth made new. The kingdom looks like the life you live, but lived fully in the presence of God and without the presence of sin and evil. Like, the, like your very best moments that you experience here on earth are just a taste of the kingdom that's coming. 
And so you think about your very best day, and that's on the low end of what the kingdom will be like. One of my favorite things to play with my son is he asks me a myriad of questions of will these things be in the kingdom, and they're all his favorite things. Trucks, Star Wars, like, you know, different toys, Spider-Man toys, Legos, and my answer is always yes. Because the very things that spark joy in my son's heart, I know cultivate joy in the father's. And if, it's just a sh- if this is just a shadow of the things to come, I can't imagine how incredible. So we just drive the whole way home. Tacos, yes. Burritos, yes. All of these things will be in the kingdom. I want my son to be overjoyed when he thinks about being with his father in heaven and the kingdom that's coming. Now, John Ortberg says this, we must arrange life so that sin no longer looks good to us. Maybe you've been struggling so bad because you just don't have enough joy in your life. And the only areas that you feel a resemblance of joy is by engaging in sinful behaviors. But you're conflating joy and pleasure. Maybe you need to cultivate more joy in your life. That when you see opportunities for sin, they don't even entice you because this life is just too good. The framework you want to have in resisting sin is not just resisting sin because it's bad, but resisting sin because life with Jesus is so much better. That will give you a new kind of strength. That will give you a new kind of um, zeal for serving the Lord Jesus. What if you cultivated, cultivated so much joy in your life that sin no longer looked good to you? That's the goal. And that's what Sabbath reminds us of. Second is to behold beauty. Marva Dawn says, observing the Sabbath gives us the opportunity to be as careful as we can, to, I love this, to fill our lives with beauty and share beauty with the world around us. When we observe a day especially set apart for beauty, <clears throat> all the rest of life is made more beautiful in a larger sense. The whole practice of Sabbath keeping makes me feel more beautiful. As I spend the day reflecting on the character of God, I am overwhelmed by his love for me. As I feast upon his goodness in all its beautiful forms, I realize more profoundly that I am a special part of his creation and designed especially for his purposes in a uniquely beautiful way. Sabbath is a day to behold beauty. Some of you that may look like going to an art museum and just enjoying pieces of beautiful art and just standing there. And something transcendent happens with those. Like, I'm not usually, like, a nostalgic person or, like, I don't know. If you like an art museum, I'm like, okay, you know, not. But something happens in those places where you are just standing before beautiful things and it stirs something in you. For others of you, it may look like beholding beauty in creation. Just stepping outside and, ex- and letting the sun hit your face and you behold the trees swaying in the wind and the birds singing in the air, and you realize life is good. One of my intentional practices for the Sabbath is just to get outside in the sun for just a few moments, even if it's seconds, and I just stand and let the sun hit my face, and it's almost healing to my body to do so. For others of you, it would look like putting on beautiful music that speaks to your soul. I wanted to add that caveat at the end that speaks to your soul, not just has a dope beat, but something that's actually edifying to your inner man, you know, an inner woman. The kind of music that cultivates in you joy and peace and love and the fruits of the Spirit. 
Sabbath is simply a day to name, notice, and celebrate the beauty in the world all around us. And that'll look different for all of you. Next is to celebrate Jubilee. Sabbath is a celebration. It is living in the reality of the kingdom. It is celebrating the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Sabbath should look like us telling stories and reflecting on our own about how wonderfully God has moved in our life. Sabbath should function like the birthday party where everyone's talking about how great of a gift this person is who's at the birthday, but it's with the Lord. And you just remind yourself of all the ways he's been there and all the things he's done for you. And you hear stories about how he's done that for others. And I'm running out of time here, but Sabbath, lastly, is about tasting eternity. Now, I mean that literally and figuratively. Let's talk about literally first. One of the greatest traditions about the Sabbath is that it is a feast. And I love that word feast because there's something that comes into your mind. If I said, like, potluck, you'd be like, mm. If I said, come over for a dinner, mm, but if I was like, bro, my house, we're having a feast, right? That's a different level. You know what I'm saying? That's what Sabbath is for. It is for feasting, eating the best meals, the things that, man, you eat it and you start like God in creation proclaiming it is good. You know, that is good. You have to just pause in a moment of glory after it's touched your tongue and just like, we worship you, you know, like, wow, blessing it. That kind of feasting, that's the celebration amongst, amongst uh, the Jewish community for generations, is that it is, all, it is this feasting. But it's not just feasting, it's feasting with people you love. Feasting, sharing a meal together. You ever have that moment where you're watching a movie by yourself, and like something hilarious happens, and you start to laugh out loud, and then you look for someone next to you and there's nobody. And then all of a sudden, like, the fun gets sucked out. Right? So you know the next time you're with somebody, you're going to show them that clip. You know, you're on, pull it up on your phone, force it into conversation. Like, someone will experience this joy with me. That's something human in you that longs to participate in the life of community with others. Something can't be fully embraced unless it's shared in community with others. That's how God wired us. And so this Sabbath feast is about doing it with others, with uh, your community, your community group, your family, just sharing in it with others. So we quite literally taste eternity, looking forward to the supper feast of the Lamb where we come and dine with Jesus. And as we partake of food and drink, we long for the day we do that with Jesus. And um, next, we remind ourselves that in that moment, it's a taste of what the kingdom will be like eating and drinking and sharing in life together with God. Now, in landing this plane, we are, if we are to be a people who take the Sabbath practice seriously, the simple act of delight will bring about deep change in our community. If we live in a joy-deprived culture, what would happen if we became a community of joy? What would happen? A friend of mine once said, beauty is the apologetic of our age. And I love that saying because I think it speaks to something that's true. Beauty bypasses all objections. There's no reasoning in front of beauty. There's no cynicism in front of it. You just stand and behold. And what would happen if this community of Jesus became a community of delight? It would be beautiful for the world's eyes to see. They would say, what do they have? I long for that.
if we would be a community marked by joy, what could change? <coughs> to enter into Sabbath light could be an invitation into the wor- to the world. But hear me in this, brothers and sisters, we cannot give that which we do not possess. So if we do not have delight, what are we inviting others into? Come out, come into my super stressed, incredibly anxious, and chaotic life. Don't you want some of that? You know, it's like, no, dude, you can keep all that to yourself. But man, if we had a way about us that was filled with delight, eased into rest, unhurried, fully present to the moment, that's the best apologetic of our age. <clears throat> I want to finish here with a um, promise from the book of Isaiah. He says this, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath, hear this, a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I want to give two really pragmatic things as you go to enter into Sabbath this week. Because I talked about a lot. Two pragmatic things. First, I want you to create a life-giving list. This is simply a list of things that give you life. And I want them to be like little small things. Like, you know, a little treat that you love, a Snickers bar from the gas station or something like that. And I want them to be like really big things like vacation to Maui because whose life-giving list is that not on? You know what I'm saying? And everything in between. And everything in between. And on your Sabbath day, do something on that life-giving list. Just do something on the life-giving list. If you have a family, bring those together. If you have friends, bring those together. We're going to do what's on your life-giving list, and we could do what's on my life. Look, our life-giving list, we could do that together. And keep that list, and cultivate that list, and add to that list. Modify that list. And the next is what psychologists call pleasure stacking. And this is just basically where you store up a lot of really good stuff for one day. Think about like a couple's anniversary celebration. Right? We're eating out breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the finest things, you know what I'm saying? Gifts and adoration and love. We're wearing our best clothes, right? It's called pleasure stacking. That's what you do in a celebration, and you do this on the Sabbath. Like, man, if you've been, like, if you gave up something for Lent or something of that nature, or you're, like, you know, paleo or keto or whatever, on Sabbath, you feast, you enjoy, you delight in. You walk into that and enjoy it. You pleasure stack, right? All week long, I, I stay away from the Oreo stack, but today we feast. You know what I'm saying? That kind of thing, pleasure stacking. So create a life-living gift list and then do a handful of those on one day and watch how it cultivates joy in you. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I want to invite you to stand Two final thoughts as we enter into a time of response. John Tyson has this line where he says, 
Beware the voice of soul-sucking reasonableness. That voice might be in your head now. Like, okay, yeah, that sounds nice for people who have time or money or energy or whatever. And you begin to make it more and more reasonable, sucking the joy out of it. Silence that voice right now. The voice of reasonableness has no place in a celebration, right? It is unreasonable to have music that high. It is unreasonable to have that much food laid out. It is unreasonable to be laughing and sharing in that way. But remember, love looks like waste. So we celebrate. The second thing is this. I've learned the most about Sabbath from my kids. I really have. Because for them, it comes naturally. And I see what I've allowed the world to suck out of me, to take from me. My kids can enter into light in a moment. And for me, I realize my heart's been coated with cynicism and fear and loss. And Jesus says, for us to be people who receive the kingdom, we have to be like kids. To restore that spirit of childlike faith childlike wonder, childlike delight again. That's my prayer for our community. Oh, that we would dance and sing and celebrate like the kids we know do. Because this pleases the Father's heart. I believe that those in the room right now who have been Wracked by the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. And only in this conversation are you feeling hesitation or reservation about entering into delight and joy. And even as we are, you felt the voice of cynicism tell you why all the ways that wouldn't work in your world. And you feel that your heart has grown cold. And you long to have this posture of delight restored in you again. I want to invite you to respond by just coming forward, opening up your hands and saying, God, make me like a kid again, filled with joy and delight. It's by coming forward and placing out your hands, you're saying, God, I want delight in my life again. There are others of you who forgot what the feeling of overflowing joy felt like. And you need that restored. That's been taken from you. I want to invite you to respond by coming forward and placing out your hand and saying, God, I need joy in my life. And as you do, people will come alongside you and pray that that would happen. Let's enter into a time of response now.